This is the No Stroke Podcast with your co-hosts, David Dancero and Michael Garrow, helping you to support and thrive in life after stroke. Their podcast is designed for educational and community support purposes only and should not replace medical treatment and guidance of your own health professional team. Welcome to episode 45 of the No Stroke Podcast. I'm here with Michael Garrow, my co-host. A little different backdrop for you, Mike. Uh, let's find you live at the International Stroke Conference uh, after a, a, a busy couple of days, I bet. So uh, tell us all about it, Mike. Yeah, so got the opportunity. Um, you know, first off, want to say a big thank you to Pam Duncan and the, the team at uh, Care Directions for really seeing the value of, you know, having the patient and caregiver name as part of, you know, what they do and, and really seeing that as an important aspect of this conference, right. And, and inviting me down to represent not only no stroke, but again, that patient and, and a caregiver perspective. Um, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a, a, for my first experience here at, a ISC, it's kind of what I thought, right. Uh, a large scientific-based conference where, you know, research, research is being discussed and, you know, leaders in neuro and stroke care are, are here to, you know, learn from each other and, you know, hopefully see, you know, real, real things change, you know, for delivery stroke. And it's, you know, the AHA has done a brilliant job with, you know, hosting this event again, the folks who are in attendance, you know, some of the most influential people you know, in stroke care. So we have, we were, I was able to run into uh, our past guests, Jeff Redon and, and uh, Stephen Davis from the Australian Stroke Alliance and met some folks with, with the uh, um, World Stroke Organization. So nice, you know, to the point of an international stroke conference, great international flair. Um, for you know being represented but um you know to to what you you had similarly similarly experienced david when you attended in la um there's no voice of a caregiver or a patient here and i get it you know you're you're here to discuss science and late breaking you know new new research and ways to advance the field but it always comes down to delivering better patient care right um and until we have that voice represented here at a larger scale where we have survivors on stage and caregivers on stage um you know i i think that's what this is missing so i'm happy that i was able to be here and experience it and again you know hopefully we'll, we have a a slate of of guests who are going to be on on the show you know again because i've had this opportunity but um, we need to do better. And I think if it's not the AHA to to kind of push that agenda, um, I know they want to be a part of it and they advocate for, for you know, the the life after stroke aspect of, of care and kind of that's part of their mission. But um, there's no doubt they need to do better. And if it's grassroots effort like ourselves and the likes of Pam and, and others who are passionate about this to actually get that voice heard, um, you know, there's there's just going to be a missing gap um, mm -hmm. until that happens. Yeah, no, that's um, so true, Mike. And, you know, I want to thank you for, you know, sharing 
you know, what's, you know, you're, you're just digesting all this. Now you're still there, you know, the mm. crowds have gone, you're, you're, you're wrapping up and you're getting ready to hop back on a plane and, and head back home. But first of all, thank you for, you know, taking, taking time away from your professional schedule to, mm. to, to, to share, um, in, in the experience of the event. And, and again, um, you know, as you and I have talked, I've been there three times now. And every time I walk away with those same impressions, um, yeah, but, um, and, yeah it's not to say they don't care. Right. It's not to say that it's not on top of every, like a focal point on everyone's mind here. Right. But it's, um, it's delivering, it's getting, these patients and caregivers here to be a part of the discussion and you walk around the hall and you you bump into people and you hear similar stories to ours right there's pts who ot's who've gotten into the profession or neurologists who've become neurologists because of a experience with a loved one right or yeah. you know a, a, they've they everyone kind of has that understanding of at the end of the day it's that patient experience right that that is what gets them out of bed every morning and and it's that delivery of of care and you know i yeah. i was you know fortunate to attend uh lunch today with lester uh young and kate skills from tufts and they're really they're bringing a group around young stroke and you know there's folks from from stanford health there's folks from um university of maryland like there's there's so many people you know, I, th I think what I've gotten out of this is there's so many things happening in silos, right? And and mm -hmm. it's bringing that together, whether it's, you know, the the neurologists who are, you know, the, the providers who are interested in specific as aspects, whether it's young stroke or transition of care. Um, and in our case, kind of the advocacy efforts on the patient or on the, the patient side and the caregiver side, um, we need to do better at it getting those silos broken and getting yeah. more people rallied and learning from each other. And, you know, it's not only granted, we have specific things from a U.S. perspective with the way our healthcare model is framed that we need to consider, but there's so many learnings from other countries and, and things that, you know, we could leverage to, to advance the way that life after stroke or or acute phase is handled um so yeah it was it was eye-opening you know really again i i'm you know fortunate that i was able to have the opportunity and thankful to you know my cvs to you know have the ability to take time off and, yep. and go travel for this um you know i think it, it it relates to you know why i am at cvs and why i work on the products that i do and you know, have the ability to touch many lives. But at, at the end of the day, like, you know, what we're missing is that patient survivor voice. So I'm happy I was able to be here, experience it. Um, Just want to add before in the news, certainly, yeah. um, it, it, you know, while we have this great backdrop of the American Heart Association behind you there, um, in as part of the ISC event, there was your, you received a really, nice nomination between episodes here so i want to personally um you know for folks who aren't aware you 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 know in all your efforts they were they were acknowledged by the american uh ha right i want to say that correctly correct um for yeah, the american yeah so yeah thank you for that david um and again i couldn't 
this couldn't have happened obviously without us right it's not a me award it's an us award um you know my name might be on it from a because it's a caregiver award but this wouldn't have happened without you like you know we're we're a team where we're you know doing this together so yeah i was fortunate to um receive a call from the american heart association who, who run the stroke heroes award um and it's a you know, award handed out to caregivers um survivors and kind of community advocates that have really tried to push the needle on advocacy and and make a change within you know stroke delivery and 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 care so yeah it's a it's an honor one to be nominated and i've fell under the voters choice award so mm-hmm. voting for that is going to start march 8th so yeah hope all of our listeners will, uh, absolutely we're going to make sure we're going to keep you abreast on on the uh pod here when direct you to how we can kind of do a full court press on that to make sure you, you push that over the line. So, um, yeah, so, um, and, and you've had a long day, so, um, I'm happy to introduce our guest. If there is anything, uh, that you, uh, you know, we, we normally do a little bit more extensive in the news, but I think in the news was the the fact that you're, you're there, you you know, you made great connections, you probably got a, a big swag bag that you probably have more information that you probably have to sort out to decide what's going to make yeah. it back on the plane or not. But a um, lot of lot of good conference materials. And I always like the exhibit hall. So I will have, definitely have to touch touch if there was any great tech on maybe maybe you grab some cards and we can kind of talk through yeah. that and maybe the future episodes. But um, we're talking well, tech on on this one. Yeah, I was able to, you know, to kind of move into that entry yeah one of those companies that you know we're here is uh mind maze and Perfect. that's who you know kind of made the connection into our guest today david petruno from um the lab at mount sinai in in new york um you know he's he's working with mine mind maze on a partnership that we'll dive into um you know so you could go back to our episode with angela green um mm-hmm. who's a therapeutic integration manager with mind maze moved in from an ot profession um, and I met some of her colleagues here today who, again, same thing, kind of moved from the delivery end to now getting into digital therapeutics. Um, but yeah, David Petruno, um, he's you know, on a roll with, with Australian themes. Um, we're keeping it going today. Yep. So he's a, a PT based, grew up in Western Australia, um, studied neuroscience in the University of Western Australia. Um, you know, he got he began his career as a clinician in Australia and then moved to the U.S. to study computational neuroscience at Harvard Medical School, MIT, and NYU. Uh, he has served as a faculty member at Cornell Medicine, Burke Medical Research Institute, and now he's with Mount Sinai, um, and you'll, you'll hear him. You know, as as I phrased him being the problem child, you know, he's he's just <laughs> done amazing work uh, since he's been in there, and really t- took the mindset, and we'll we'll cover it. Of, you know, there's so many research folks who who chase the um, you know, government NIA funding, yeah. and he's kind of gone down the road of commercial. So, yeah, again, we'll we'll dive into stroke care. He kind of brings us on his personal journey of. You know, experiencing the patient side of things um and outside of mount sinai i mean he's just a very uh cool guy I mean, he works with performance division at red bull he works with this group called not impossible labs which do some super innovative uh, rehab tech 
and he works with the likes of uh, the Nets and some high performance yeah. athletes. Yeah, well, so. and 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 for, so, so folks, he's no we, longer. We, yeah, big other news. We got Kate, Kevin Durant, which we talked to. He's no longer in Brooklyn over well, at Phoenix. Yeah, Jones. so folks, when you listen to this interview, Mike's going to press him about three times for a deeper dive into what's going on with that. But I think I, I was I catching a little inkling. Are you trying to get into the lab to see if he can help you get out of retirement? Are you trying to? You trying to make your way back on the court in some capacity? Is that, you know, uh, I think I've hung it up for good. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, he, he was, he, you know, he, he, he was, uh, whatever's happening there on the sports science side, he definitely, I think he, he handled it well. So, but, uh, it was, <laughs> but listen, um, I, um, I think we'll, uh, I just, I, I, I let's jump into this one because, uh, really timely you know he's really like you mentioned in his intro he's he's kind of going after that one percent and that innovation and a lot of you know the academia and the you know the the academic medical centers um very comprehensive approach in terms of innovation and that patient perspective through the whole journey is really what totally. i really appreciated it about the work he's doing and and again we mentioned him in the same sentence with what they're doing at Shirley Ryan. We'll 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 jump right into this one and and hopefully um Mike you have a safe trip back and I want to thank you for you know bringing us live there and on the end of a busy day for you so thanks again yeah. for uh, representing. Yeah, thank you and again thanks to uh Pam Duncan and the team at Care Directions for uh making it happen. Absolutely. All right. Enjoy this episode with David Petrino. All right. Welcome to the No Strokes podcast, David. It's great to have you here today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is this is great. Yeah. Yeah. We're super excited to have a chat with you. Um, you know, where we were on a bit of a kick here with some you know, Australian guests. And, you know, you're you're a removed Australian, been over here for in the States for a few years. But let's uh let's, you know, go into your your background. You know what you heard you, you grew up in western parts of australia and then got dragged over here to to study something minor i mean we'll <laughs> we'll talk about it but let's let's hear your background you know what what brought you stateside yeah i mean i i uh i was a physio back back home in australia um and uh i was i was doing a lot of neuro rehab um with all sorts of neurological patients um I was also just broadly interested. I was doing a lot of musculoskeletal work as well, to be honest. And, um, uh, you know, I, I just got very frustrated with the the state of neuro rehab in that um, the rules tended to change based on the senior therapist at whichever hospital you were working at. It, it didn't seem to be based on the literature I was reading or, you know, what what may have been best practice. It was just, you know, do what the boss tells you to do and that's how you treat stroke patients so that's how you treat spinal cord patients um and uh so i went off and did a phd in in motor neuroscience um in you're working in animal models trying to understand um first just initiation and control of voluntary movement and then uh what happens when a stroke occurs um how does that how do those you know individual neuron activities change and then what happens as recovery happens does do we see changes in neural activity there and and then as well so it was really interesting um i kind of got bit by the research bug for sure and um that was when uh i i was invited 
um, over to to Boston to um, take a postdoc position. Uh, what what kind of blows my mind? I, I'm I swear I'm not trying to like act like I'm not old, but um, what kind of blows my mind is that I was offered the position to move over to Boston uh, in 2009, and neuroscience was such an new field at that time it, it, it's kind of crazy to think about how you say neuroscience now and, and almost everyone knows what you mean in 2008 2009 when you said neuroscience people didn't really the the common public didn't really understand the term i found myself often having to describe what neuroscience was as a term it's a household term now um and i think it's also interesting to to imagine that you know back then we were doing uh, brain recording experiments. We built our own electrodes um, because you couldn't, <laughs> you could buy electrodes, but like getting them shipped to Australia was an ordeal and it was expensive and it was hard. And so we read a journal article about how to make your own sort of micro electrodes and implant them. And, and that's what we did. And then when we finally completed the experiments, I had all of this neural data we had collected and there were all these computational neuroscientists in the US saying, oh, wow, you've got neural data, come over. We we don't have neural data, but we're building this whole concept of computational neuroscience. And I was a physio who had never written a line of code in my life. And uh, I was, you know, my PhD analysis was done in Excel. You know, again, I think this is aging me, but I want to insist that it wasn't that long ago. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I, I moved over to Boston. Uh, I was really fortunate to work with with Emery Brown uh, out there, who's just an incredibly talented um, anesthesiologist, neuroscientist, and statistician. You know, full professor of uh, medicine at Harvard, full professor of stats at MIT, and the chair of anesthesiology at MGH. So, um, super impressive guy. Ran an amazing lab. Um, I worked with him for a couple of years and learned a lot. You know, I, I like to say that when I was working with Emery, I never learned how to be a, you know, a biostatistician or a computational neuroscientist, but I learned how to speak to one, um, which when I walked in, forget about it. We were, we were all speaking different languages. And when I walked out, I could at least have an intelligent conversation, which I think is really important for innovation um because if you can't do that you just end up with people running in their own directions and not consulting one another um so that was a great experience for me um i the experimentalist in me was getting a bit itchy at that point two years of just running numbers was um was fun and and a lot of learning but i i wanted to move on so I moved to NYU and started doing some brain computer interface work in, in uh, large primate models. Um, and again, it was really interesting. It was a challenging project. It was, it was cool. I worked on it for about three or four years. It was DARPA funded. Um, so really, you know, bleeding edge stuff. But uh, that was probably my second big crisis of faith in, in neuroscience in that um, I, when I hit the end of that project, I, you know, the rest of the team that I was working with um, was so excited that we had hit the deliverables and that we'd done something that was curing paralysis. Um, and I was the only clinician on the team and I was kind of just 
horrified by that take. I was like, we haven't cured anything. We haven't done anything. We haven't fixed a person. We haven't fixed a monkey, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> that we didn't break first. Um, it, it, it just, what you know, I, I, I started to realize this gap in translation that we were facing where, um, you know, we, we say something on a paper that we've done something of great significance. We write on a grant that, oh, the knowledge that we get here is going to be so important for those living with spinal cord injury and stroke and traumatic brain injury and all the rest. And yet this experiments are being conducted by people who've never been in a room with a patient um, and, and, and they're being guided uh, in a way that you can tell that these people have never been in a room with a patient, don't know how to scale a product to a clinical population, uh, don't know how to work with clinicians. Um, and so I, I, saw a, I saw an opportunity there, you know, and, and I, I said, you know, I, I left that lab and I, I went out to, you know, you got to start your own lab, right, at some point. And um, so I was shopping around and, and I was offered a position at Cornell and I said all of these things. I was like, I want to be this lab that's at the intersection of the cool neuroscience experiments, but then straight into clinical, you know, intervention and and i i don't i don't think that the nih is going to get us there i don't want to write grants and i don't you know i want to work with industry and it was funny because you know cornell they they yesed me to death they were like yes 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 we we feel that way as well you know and i literally you know if you sign the contract on the on the document and the cage came down right and they're like ha just kidding write grants <laughs> do do incremental experiments and, uh, you know, and, and just that's what you're supposed to do academic and leave everything else to the clinicians. And um, so, you know, I, it kind of made it work. I, I, I worked, I, I was writing grants and playing the game. But in the meantime, like it was kind of like a guilty habit. Like whenever I had free time, I'd run off and do like this hugely disruptive experiment. And they'd be like, what did you just do? Nothing, effect, look, writing grants, don't worry about it. Um, and then uh, my current boss, Joe Herrera, gave me a call and he had seen me speak at a, at a presentation about innovation in, in rehab. And he's at Mount Sinai where I'm sitting right now at the Mount Sinai Hospital. And he said, look, I really loved your presentation and we need more innovation here at Mount Sinai and I want to give you a job. And I said to him, listen, you know, you're an academic medical center. You're a big one. You're, you're about the same as Cornell. Um, I'm really, you know, I'm unhappily married here at Cornell, but like, why would I divorce, move the family just to be unhappily married at another big academic medical center? I just don't, I don't believe it's going to be different, you know? And he was like, look, I promise you it will be different. We are trying to, we are actively trying to be different. We're actively saying yes to innovation. Just come and interview and do your thing um, and let's give it a go. And, I'm, you know, he was compelling. <laughs> um, and I showed up and, uh, you know, that was five years ago and, and Sinai has, has lived up to it. We, we started one center called the Abilities Research Center, which was focused on this intersection I was talking about, the idea that we 
take novel technologies and we accelerate them through all of these regulatory phases. We run pragmatic clinical trials. We have a clinic where if the technology works, we make sure that it's in the clinic the next day as a treatment. And then we scale it to the larger Mount Sinai population, um, you know, because we're eight hospitals here in New York. So it's, you know, once you can scale something, you can scale something. And, um, uh, you know, and over the last five years, we've gone from one center to two centers to three. And and uh, this year we're opening up our fifth center. So, um, you know, we've we've slowly been growing over time and it's it's been really great to um, to do it. So you're a bit of the problem child then, huh? All these centers, they were. <laughs> constantly, constantly. Well, a, a problem child that, you know, I, I appreciate you, the many points you made in that, but one of them, you know, really around, you know, researchers researching without kind of having that patient perspective, right? And actually being in the room with some of these, whether it's stroke, ALS, Parkinson's, whatever it might be, right? Um, and it takes that patient experience. And that's what we like to bring in, you know, from David as a survivor perspective and me as a caregiver here. Um, you know, when we speak to individuals like you, you know, you've you've also had an experience. And if you don't mind kind of bringing us back to the Western Australian days of you growing up and, you know, kind of letting the listeners know what you experienced and, and kind of how that molded your why for what you're doing right now. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's something I I I, uh, I don't talk about a whole lot, just because um, I'm not sure. In this case, it was it was the biggest impact on my my trajectory. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's a coincidence or what, but yeah, I mean, when I was very young, I was 18 months old. I had a um, uh, a febrile seizure that led to me um, losing consciousness and stopping breathing and um, I was rushed off to the hospital. Uh, so this was, you know, mid eighties, uh, a children's hospital somewhere in the middle of um, uh, Western Australia. And, uh, you know, at the point, at that point, I was sort of blue in the face. I'd been unresponsive for a little while. They brought me back and um, I had a sort of a dense hemiparesis on the left side of my body. Uh, and uh, upon waking the, the sort of uh, attending neurologist in the hospital told my parents that I was paralyzed um uh told them that I wouldn't recover um uh, which you know again thinking back on these things now it's like some kid some kid wakes up and 48 hours later you're telling their parents that there's you know you know um permanent paralysis uh I'm glad we've come a long way um from that but um uh you know, my parents who both, um, you know, they immigrated to Australia as, um, uh, as a, well, one a teenager and one a, one a young kid, um, didn't speak the language, didn't really get any education. So, um, you know, my, my dad, I think, finished the seventh grade. My mom finished fourth grade. Um, and they took me home and they were like, okay, left side isn't working. So everything goes on his left side. <laughs> and and uh you know that's it that's gonna be rehab um and you know I, I was very fortunate I I acknowledge now that I know what I know about a brain recovery 
I acknowledge that it probably wasn't just <laughs> this old homie, you know, rehabilitation that that made everything come back. There was probably a lot of good fortune along the way. And, uh, you know, um, but I was very fortunate that, you know, I feel as though I had a full recovery. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that that's something that um, I do think back on a lot and ruminate on. Uh, honestly, in terms of where my life has gone and where my career has gone, um, uh, there was another accident that I had that I think probably shaped me more toward physical therapy. And it, it was actually when I was um, uh, 16, I was playing Australian football, which is, I don't know if you've ever seen Australian football, but it it's this beautiful combination of, I don't know, soccer and getting mugged in a street alley. Um, I, I lived in Ireland for a while, so <laughs> it's kind of like a hurling type of game, you know? Yeah, they, yeah. they just they go out and bash Irish each football. other. Yeah, 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 there you yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I I was a very big player of Australian football, still still am from time to time. You can find me on a field somewhere, but um uh but I, I, I broke my leg pretty badly. Uh and I was shuttled off to hospital and I was at that point in my my life in my high school, you know, where they were sort of like, you need to choose what degree you're going to do next then in Australia you kind of jump straight into a professional degree it's not like America where you do like four years of bachelor's and then you you specialize where you want to go it's like you go straight into med school or straight into PT or you know wherever you want to end up and I knew I wanted to do something in health but I didn't actually you know I was kind of like oh probably medicine everyone says medicine you know um and so there I am like laying in hospital and um throughout it all I and it was a very bad break so I was in hospital for quite some time and then rehab for a while and uh, uh, throughout it all you know I had this the image I had it was the first time seeing the health system inside out in a way that I could remember because I was you know a teenager as opposed to a, a you know teenage monther um, and uh, you know all these doctors were running in and out and they'd spend like a minute with me you know da 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 and check off a few boxes and, and run off. Um, there wasn't a real, real connection. There was just sort of like, there's the guy who operated on my leg and, you know, and they were all busy and, and, um, and the physios were the ones that got me better. The physios were like sporty and cool and like pushing me on and, and helping me to recover. And they were a legitimate part of the journey. I bonded with them all and, you know, I, I liked them and, um, you know, and they they bonded with me. You know, they got emotional when I uh, walked for the first time because, you know, because it was such a bad break and we were having non-union issues and all this, uh, you know, all this stuff. And uh, that was very formative for me. I was like, this is, this is the relationship I want with my patients. You know, like, this is what I want to have. Um, so I went and did physical therapy instead of... Um, or physiotherapy in Australia, instead of uh, medicine, uh, because of that exact reason. I was like, this is, this is what I want. And this is the rapport. I don't want to be the person who runs in, orders a few things and runs out. Um, and, um, and so that was, that was a big, big moment in my life. I didn't want to interrupt. But actually, you saw that actually some member of the healthcare team that actually spent more than four or five minutes with you at a time, right? Did they actually were invested in hands-on? So that's, an, and I just have to go back to your first encounter when, when you described your, your, your story as a young child. 
I actually was thinking that your parents actually had a really good understanding of the neuroscience, <laughs> but they might not have had the the, the, the the formal training, but they knew they were going to get that left side to work. They were going to, you know, make movement meaningful for you. So um, I just wanted to add that, but I appreciate you, you know, sharing your background and, and what made you, um, you know, want to take a deeper dive into the brain from these early experiences and, and also with your foundation as a physio. Um, we, um, we, we, I wanted to talk um, a little bit more because what you were talking about on the patient engagement side and having patients along for that journey as you're innovating, um, what what makes that unique at at at, at Mount Sinai? Um, where, how early on in the discovery process do you bring them in with with new innovation and and can you kind of describe that patient centered? Uh, experience that that uh, you guys embrace there. Yeah, I mean, with, with everything that we do, we try to um, e everything that we try to do uh, is is sort of just rooted in community co design as, as a concept. So we think it, it, it's not always patients. You know, sometimes there are tools for clinicians we're evaluating. Sometimes there are tools for caregivers that we're evaluating. But no matter what we're doing. Um, you know, as early as humanly possible. You know, sometimes it's not always possible because of NDAs and other legal things that are in place, but as, as early as we possibly can, we're always trying to bring the population in to say, is this a good idea? Should we commit to this? Should we run a clinical trial on this? Should we, should we get it done? So um, from the outset, we're asking our patients um, what we're doing. Most of our clinical centers, <clears throat> um, you know, all but two for uh, actually, um, and not for want of uh, trying just because we're, we're still working two of them out, to be honest. Um, we have a lived experience advisory board where we bring on patients with the conditions that we're trying to treat. We bring on, and we, we talk to them about areas that we're targeting each year. And we're like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do next. And should we do it or should we do something else? But we think that this area is worth going into. And, um, uh, you know, and then we talk about new services and how do we make people access these services more easily and, and, and what can we do? And so everything that we do as early as we can, we're talking to the end user, the, the person that it's, it's intended to help. Um, when we're designing the experiments, um, you know, we want to understand, like, pragmatically what our end users care about the most. If we can measure that, great. If we can't, no worries. When the when the experiment is over, and we start to move into the phase of, let's say, the technology goes well, and you know, so the experiment's success, we then move into the phase of, okay, we're going to adopt this in the clinic. It's going to be a technology that we have in the clinic that is now a clinical technology, not an experimental one. At that point, we bring the we bring the community back in and we say, okay, well, this is the real deal now. Do you know there's one thing to show success in a in a trial where where maybe someone's getting paid 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or 200 bucks to be in the trial, um, you know, and and there's there's a lot of incentive and you're getting like you're kind of getting white glove service, you know, like there's a clinical coordinator telling you when all your appointments are and walking you through everything very stark difference when now it's a, clin a clinical product 
and you're you're a lot more on your own and your insurance is getting billed for it and you know the next step is is going back to the community and going okay well do you like it <laughs> is this worth it um are you actually using it uh, you know going to our clinicians is this a pain in the butt like do you actually want to interact with this technology or were you just smiling and nodding and gritting your teeth through the clinical trial phase because we were getting funded to do the clinical trial but now you're like i don't want to use it because it's it's my time um and and that's you know it's very different from a clinical trial but it's a very important information gathering stage because it tells us which technologies are going to do well and which technologies are just going to you know not going to scale um and it's all the the whole process um, needs to be community centered. Yeah, I love the way you you talk through that, and I think you like with given your background with cognitive neuroscience, right? Like it's that understanding of the psychological aspect of neuroscience is kind of how I understand some of your work, right? It's that you know we often talk about behavior change, motivational interview, you know, kind of being a big part of life after stroke, right? And a lot of what you're doing from a lab perspective in my I'm a product manager and you know that's a big part of what I do right it's that early validation you're getting users to, you know in the process early um and I what I find interesting is like you guys are doing this both on the you know pre-trial kind of pre-commercial lens but then you're and I listened to one of your talks where you, you know you're you're really one of the only centers in the country and another one that we had on from Shirley Ryan, Arun in the Shirley Ryan Ability Arun's Lab. Awesome. Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, he's a rock star, um, you know, where you're kind of taking more of this commercial lens. And one of the companies um, that we recently had on the podcast, Mind Maze, I know you've recently partnered with here. So I, I'd love for you to, you know, speak about, you know, how that, I mean, obviously, you know, there could be you know, NDAs and things that we, we can't go into, but at a high level, you know, what, what excites you about the opportunity of mind maze and the, like the technology of virtual reality for stroke patients? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, mind maze is, is a technology that, that, um, excites me because they, they've just had, uh, from the outset, they've just had a very good mission and true north around what it might look like to create tele-rehab for stroke survivors. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot um, when, when it comes to stroke survivors uh, and their ability to recover is just uh, general dosage uh, of, of therapy. We, we do so much, um, you know, we, we often evaluate uh, so many of these clinical trials where a new technology will emerge and we'll do, you know, this randomized controlled trial where someone gets either standard of care or the new technology. And um, standard of care is more often than not, you know, listed as, oh, you're going to get like an hour and a half, two hours a day, three days a week of upper extremity training. Um, and then versus the new technology. Um, and then more often than not, you see non-inferiority, you know, versus the new the the new technology, and um, I'm like, in what world is one and a half hours a day of upper extremity training standard of care for any human being who has had a stroke in the United States? You know, three days a week that that doesn't happen. 
But what we do see over and over again in clinical trials is it works. It works well. Um, and people, yeah. And, and so, and, and I mean, and part of that is from stroke clinical trials. Part of that is from my work with high performance athletes, where I'm like, if you want to see behavioral change, you got to get them working so much, <laughs> you know, um, and you've got not only get them working hard and long hours, but doing things that are interesting, cognitively exciting, engaging, you know, um, and, and keeping them coming back intrinsically, not just because someone's telling them to do it, but because they want it. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've, for the longest time, I, I think it's no secret that I've been advocating for gamification as being a way, way to make that happen. And, um, uh, you know, the mind-based technology is just great. It's comprehensive. Um, it's something that can be deployed out to um, to stroke survivors, and then they can start to get the dosage of therapy that they need. And uh, you know, they've just been a company that's also, um, you know, more on a policy side, really interested in working with us to start making sure that we can chase CPT codes that can reimburse for these sorts of things. That you know, it's not just about their technology; it's about making. Uh, you know, raising raising the bar for everybody so that these that many of these technologies can be supported, because you know that's how you build an ecosystem and that's how you make lasting impact. And and we're always, you know, interested in supporting groups that are interested in in disrupting the status. Yeah, I think you know you're spot on there. And you know, as we spoke with Angela, um, who leads therapy integration with MindMazer in, in in the U.S., you know the the ability for them, you know, that you could look at stroke rehab and in this space in general, right. Where there's so much opportunity to have, but you know, we're kind of at this intersection where we know it works in clinical trials, but we now need to prove and kind of get that efficacy and have the, the full cycle catch up where reimbursement happens and more patients could actually get access to this amazing technology and rehab. So, um, we're going to take a, a short break here. I think we're going to jump back into part two um, yeah, and dive into some exciting work around um, brain interface technology. So we'll be right back. Hey there, No Stroke listeners. Whether this is your first episode you've tuned into or you've been a loyal listener since episode one, Dave and I are super thankful you're choosing to spend some time with us today. A goal of ours this year is to learn more about our listeners. After today's show, head over to our new website, nostrokepod.com. That's K-N-O-W-S-T-R-O-K-E-P-O-D.com and choose an option in the drop-down titled, What's Your Connection to Stroke? If you have a topic or want to recommend a guest for the show, we've also made it easy for you to simply submit your feedback all on the new website. You could always reach out to David and I personally through our social channels or via email. And all those contact details, including the new link to the website, can be found in the show notes. Thank you. Now let's get back to today's show. All right. And we're back with David Petruno from Mount Sinai Ability Lab. Um, we are, we discussed, you know, obviously your background, David, um, coming over to the States, you know, you're you're kind of getting thrown into this research that you've been able to do for many years now, and you finally found yourself um, at a at a 
health system that's really empowering you to impact lives, work with some super interesting companies like MindMaze. Um, and you're, you have your hands in a lot of different pies. Um, <laughs> one of them, one of them being the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, which I'm a basketball guy. I used to play. That was the reason I spent my time in Ireland. So maybe we could chat about that before this interview <laughs> wraps up. But um, I want to touch on some work that you're doing with brain interface technology um, and particularly a company based here in, in uh, Brooklyn called Synchron. So yeah. bring us through that because, you know, I just to kind of give you an example of at least from what I've seen with this. My so I'm a caregiver for my mother. My fiance's mom also had a stroke, right? And my fiance's mother is, a, you know, has issues with. You know, she has aphasia. Um, she has really bad uh, spasticity in her left arm. Hard for her to one access technology, right? So we just tried to get her, um, and she's been able to manage, but get her into a virtual aphasia group. Um, where she's able to connect in, but technology is really tough for her, right? And this is an example for many other stroke survivors and uh, you know folks who've had neurological conditions. So, I think the opportunity ahead for what you could you know kind of describe to us here that Synchron is doing is is really game changing for you know ones that are close to my life, but again, many 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 others out there. So. Bring us through this work um, and what it means for future folks who who might be living with these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think uh, probably I met Tom Oxley, who's the CEO of um, of Synchron. Um, probably, I, I think 2011, 2012. Uh, I, I had mentioned I was at NYU and and we were funded by DARPA to do some exciting brain computer interface research um and and DARPA it's a department of defense funded you know uh group and and they're really out there to to chase the big ideas the the really risky moonshot um ideas and and it's a very intense thing to have money from DARPA because like every week you got to send them a report telling them what you're doing uh, and how you're doing and are you on track but also you know it's a lot of money so you, you do it um uh, but uh you get to do exciting projects and what was what struck me from meeting tom was you know you're in a room full of people who every what everyone is doing is crazy there, there's not a single person there that's not doing something that's pretty out there but tom was by far the craziest of the group you know so it was everyone else was was doing brain computer interface work the the traditional way sticking electrodes into brains and and tom was saying no 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 we're going to go through the blood vessel and we're going to get close enough to the brain to be able to record brain activity but we're not going to have to open the skull we're not going to have to you know uh do any of these things and uh it was again it was really interesting because i i think i mentioned that i was the only clinician on my team so i was the clinician in me was like, this is amazing. This is minimally invasive. This is, you know, uh, all of, I saw all of the pros and I was on a team of engineers and they were like, no, 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 the, the signal quality is going to be bad. And the, you know, you're, you're going to get so much noise from the blood, you know, going through the blood vessel and, um, you know, all, all the negatives. And, um, 
and I kind of, you know, he, he uh, I, I met Tom a couple of times. I liked him. Uh, I kind of forgot about him for about a decade. Uh, and then I joined the team at Mount Sinai. Uh, and um, sure enough, I uh, 10 years later, I just bump into Tom and he's a neurosurgeon at Mount Sinai and uh, sorry, an interventional neurologist at Mount Sinai working in the neurosurgery department. And um I, I catch up with him and he's like, hey, we're about to start first in human trials. And I was like, who's running the trial? And he's like, actually, I don't know. I can't get anyone invested in this. Like everyone's telling me it's going to be too many problems. And I was like, bring it, bring it on down to my lab. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely do this with you. Problem so, child coming for you. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> but see, you know, what, what's crazy is the, the difference between, uh, you know, some of my past jobs versus the new job was, you know, I would come to like past bosses with an idea like this and they'll be like, no, too risky. I come to my, my, my present boss, Joe Herrera, and he's like, yeah, do it, do it tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm the one. I'm the one putting on the brakes. I resent that he has put me in this position where I'm the guy being like, "Wait, maybe you know, maybe we should hold back on this a little bit." Um, but but that's where I'm at. That's my life now. Um, I'm the responsible one. But uh, we, you know, we we threw a few ideas around and we were getting things going, and uh, we were fortunate enough to win some NIH funding to support the first in human trial, uh, which is ongoing now. And, uh, you know, um, it's, it's a very, you know, this is an invasive technology. Um, and so uh, right now we're, we're at a phase of safety feasibility, meaning we're going to implant these devices. We want to make sure that it's safe so that, that someone can tolerate this technology for a long period of time. We want to make sure that it's feasible, meaning that, um, uh, over time, the recording, you know, the signal still works, the devices work, you know, all of those pragmatic things. Um, and then in the next set of uh, clinical trials, we'll go on to, okay, how well does this work and how useful is it and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, we, we've, we've gotten going with the technology. We've implanted uh, three people in this clinical trial so far. The, the technology, like I mentioned, it, it's very unique. So while other brain-computer interface technologies require you to open the skull, um, implant something directly into the brain, and then close the skull, close the scalp, and often you have a little socket on the outside of your body that you need to plug in, uh, this technology enters the body through the jugular vein. So um, a surgeon that's used to doing endovascular procedures will will thread a little wire through the jugular vein into another vessel, which is called the superior sagittal sinus, which is a big vein that kind of sits between the two hemispheres of the brain. And when it gets to the, the level of the motor cortex, which is kind of in the middle of the head, um, the neurosurgeon opens up the stent and it's sort of this little cylindrical mesh sits on the, on the inside of the blood vessel. Now this mesh has electrodes on it. And so the mesh eventually over time heals into the blood vessel. And then there's just a wire that goes back down, uh, you know, the vessel from where it came and plugs into a little pacemaker-like device that sits um, on the upper part of the chest. And so the whole system is completely internal. You don't see anything on the outside. And 
Uh, and then uh, once once you're ready to go, once you're out of the hospital, you know, and, and it's usually a procedure, the, the patient comes in, they spend two days in the hospital and then they go home, which is extraordinary. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, once, once the patient's ready to start training, we take a device that kind of looks like a cell phone, you pop it over um, the skin where you know that the internal device is, and they communicate via Bluetooth to send brain activity to a computer that uh, then goes on to sort of control the system. So the initial technology is used as a, a communication technology. So uh, like I mentioned, these electrodes, they sort of sit in the brain right near what we call the primary motor cortex. So if I think about wiggling my left foot, it can pick up that impulse. And over time, uh, with the machine learning algorithms that are being applied, it can start to identify with very good accuracy. Um, okay, this person's trying to wiggle their left foot. So let's assign a control signal to that attempt to wiggle their left foot. So, um, you know, maybe you want that to be left click of the mouse. Now they're trying to wiggle their right foot. That can be right click of the mouse. Now they're trying to do, you know, something else that can be, you know, open and close a hand is, is one that we've been using with patients. That's a zoom, a, a zoom and click. Um, and so you map on all of these different functions to different movement attempts. And eventually uh, we get to a point where the patient is able to control a cursor um, with, with a very special control system where there's kind of an arrow sort of moving around the dial and when the patient clicks the cursor starts to move in that direction and then they can click to stop it and then they can click on an on an icon um and so uh, over time the patient gets really skilled at this you know one of our patients for instance was able to um open up an email uh you open up gmail and send off an email that said hi to his primary caregiver that's living in the house um, uh, inside of three minutes, um, controlling lights and, you know, and devices in the house through, a, you know, through a control system on the screen, um, obviously using, using it for communication, um, similar to, you know, an eye gaze system or, or something of that nature, um, opening up a zoom, you know, so, so all of these little, we call them digital ADLs, um, digital activities of daily living that allow, someone who was otherwise completely locked in to have digital control of it, well, cognitive control of a digital device. Fascinating. Uh, returning independence in, in many ways, just to small tasks like that are monumental for someone to bring back their, their quality of life. Wow. Um, in, in the average week, um, after hearing your story, I'm not sure. I I I used to say I, I said, previous interview with Dr. J. Ram and at uh, Shirley Ryan. I said, I want his job now. I want your job too. Uh, so so <laughs> it's really cool stuff. Uh, Sounds a bit risky to me. I don't. Know. <laughs> uh, not, not for uh, a problem. Not for a yeah. problem, child, Mike. No, true. So I assume this is your work with the Nets, right? So you've been able to simulate. Kevin Durant's mind to be able to shoot 95% from the free throw line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no comment. No comment. I can't. <laughs> I can't take questions. On that. Uh, so, uh, you know, you've talked through revolutionary work, David. Um, you know, and and it's, you know, it, again, like similar to what David was saying when we finished up the interview with uh, Dr. Jay Raman. Like, you know, it's it's amazing. It's really you know, opportunistic for folks who are listening in the stroke community to know that they have people like yourselves really leading the charge here with some of the the kind of trailblazing efforts that are happening you know, from clinical trial perspective, but also your work, you know, to kind of to get some of these devices into the hands of patients and reimburse. So thinking through that whole process, um, you've, you've also, you know, have within this lab, you have a a few different projects. I don't know. Are there any? Is there anything else you want to touch on? I know, um, you know, we we definitely want to get to your book that you've written and you know, kind of how you you think through this design process um, for digital health and digital therapeutics. So, yeah, I'll leave it. If there's anything else you want to touch on from the lab perspective, or we could just jump into the book. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think. Um, so you could talk all day on the left. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, we, we, at any one time, we've got, you know, 20, 30 clinical trials running out of the lab. And uh, I mean, some of the things that I'm particularly interested in that we have coming, you know, coming in the pipeline uh, this year. And uh, it is, uh, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of work with um, implantable technology for stroke recovery. So we're looking, we're deeply looking into vagus nerve stimulation uh, for upper extremity recovery. We're impressed by what we're seeing so far and, and we hope to continue that work. And I know that there's a lot of eyes on that, but again, it was one of these things where we saw a randomized controlled trial. It worked out pretty well. Okay, let's offer it here. Let's see how it goes. Let's see what patients feel about it. Let's, you know, hang on to our patients and make sure that they feel as though it was worthwhile for them. Um, we're really trying to um, accelerate some initial clinical trials into epidural spinal stimulation as well for upper extremity recovery and stroke. Um, again, uh, you know, some really impressive work by um, Doug Weber and uh, John Krakauer out in Pittsburgh uh, that was just published, uh, you know, in Nature Medicine, uh, showing some very impressive outcomes um in epidural spinal stimulation so you know we're we're uh, we're running in that direction um and we have some clinical trials coming up uh and you know we're just in general one of the things that we're really trying to push for is uh running clinical trials on interventions that restore function as opposed to um teaching people to live with the function that they have um and you know so compensation versus restoration um and we we are all about compensation if it improves overall function and we're all about uh pushing people to the limit of working with what they've got but then and and that's what we do that's our rehab you know like go for it but now we're getting very excited about technologies that might be able to unlock new function and 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 you know very authentically reduce disability and so some of these implantable tech um approaches uh, really have our interest right now and um we want to we just want to get to the bottom of it we, we're not pro or against we just want to see if it works and tell the community as, as quickly as possible 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it is special. So, are there ongoing clinical trials that folks could kind of reach out to the lab and and get involved in, or how how could people learn a bit more about? The, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, if they if they Google Abilities Research Center at Mount Sinai, like I said, there's a lot. I'm not going to torture everyone by rattling yeah. them off, but you know, if they Google Abilities Research Center at Mount Sinai, there's a whole list of clinical trials that are we're currently recruiting for, and um, and people can always just email Abilities Research Center at MountSinai.org and um, and just say, hey, I've had a stroke or I have Parkinson's. Have you got anything going on? Um, or, you know, I don't know why I just said those two, but, you know, just tell us who you are and tell us uh, what you're interested in and we can see if we can fit a clinical trial. Awesome. And it, you know, obviously being proximity to New York would be great, but do you guys offer telehealth stuff as well? Yeah, yeah. We, we've we've got a few trials that involve, um, you know, more far-reaching interventions as well. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, we have two Davids here today, two Davids being a lot of similarities, you know, one being you have background in PT, which I know, you know, David, our David, you know, has uh, has a passion for. And you also are both authors. So I'm the only non-author here at the table. Maybe that'll change one day. But bring us through uh, Hacking Health and, you know, the book that you've released. And and again, as you've spoke today, um, it's one I want to pick up and read because I think you're a perfect man to think about designing digital health solutions. So bring us through it. Yeah. You know, um, uh, well, it's funny because I think that, you know, David said that he, he, he wants my job and, and I would be happy to give David my job. I want to retire, but, um, I, <laughs> but what I would much prefer is, you know, that, um, that we start placing all sorts of David's, um in locations all around the country um because uh what i what i really firmly believe is is the fact that um you know we've fallen into this risk averse hole where um you know the nih does its best but it's got a limited pot of money it only funds incremental research um and so it takes us 20 years to get anything good for patients um and but there's a whole lot of gravitas associated with getting this nih research money right there's a whole lot of oh they got nih money and it contributes to your university's rankings and you know all of these things um and so people chase it uh and and so you know one of the things that i was really sort of gobsmacked by was how much money there was in industry that was just being wasted, like terribly wasted, because academic medical institutions wouldn't partner with industry. They were just like, no, no, we want to chase, we all want to scramble for this one little pot of NIH money, um, which will only, you know, our, our research will only kick the can down the road this much. And they're they're ignoring these groups that could be supporting highly disruptive innovation uh, that could really benefit patients. Uh, just because, A, they didn't know how, that they don't know how to interact with industry. It's just kind of foreign. Um, and B, because they're like, no, 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 the university wants me to get this NIH money, not this industry money. Um, and, you know, like, that really bothered me, not because I believe in incremental research. I think it's really important. 
I think that it it has its place and we have a lot of incredible discoveries because people did the incremental work to get there. Um, but I also think that we, what we've done is because we're risk averse financially, we've skewed in the wrong direction. So we've, you know, rather than have a balance of let's do 50% moonshot, crazy, disruptive, interesting, exciting, actually could help a patient tomorrow research. And let's do 50% incremental. We're 99%, you know, uh, risk averse incremental and we're 1% disruptive. Um, and, and so I really, you know, what I want to do, and, and I did it with Hacking Health a few, I, I'm kind of, I, I kind of read Hacking Health now and I'm like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. It was so long ago, but, you know, maybe it's time for a second edition, but I, I'm, <laughs> but also who wants to write a, a second edition? Um, so, you know, but what I wanted to do with that book was be like, here's a how-to guide. Here's a, like a quick, don't be afraid of industry and also industry, don't be afraid of academia. You guys should meet and pick up this book, read this book and go and start your own abilities research center. Because believe me with, you know, you know, as you mentioned, like everyone else doing chasing NIH money and there's two of us in the country chasing industry money. There's enough, you know, like there's enough for everybody. There's enough for thousands of people to be doing what we're doing. Yeah. And, and you look at Truly. it's that full cycle, right? Like you look at digital health, digital therapeutics market that got, you know, billions, billions of dollars of funding over the last you know, decade, you know, from a VC perspective, these companies go build products that they try to then put into the market. There's a, we need the clinical evidence. They try to go work with a, you know, these hospitals that, and you know, there's, it's that cycle that just needs change. And, you know, again, people like yourself and Dr. Roon to, to be able to bring this full circle um, is important. And yeah, hopefully we can clone, clone you and, bring it into other places across the country because you're not going to do it all no, yourself. No one needs more me. Just, just clone <laughs> the approach. Uh, that's, that's enough. But um, yeah. But, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, the most important thing is the, our patients deserve it. You know, mm -hmm. like I, I just, mm -hmm. I can't fathom having to wait 17 years for a cure. And I, and I think that um, people, this is why it's so important to have community co-design because I can't get away with anything when when a patient advisory board wanders in and looks at me and is like, all right, well, what, what the fuck have you done? You yeah. know, what are you doing? What's next? If I don't have answers, like I feel like an idiot and and I should because what have I done for them lately? You know, and what what are what is in the pipeline? And, and you know, does your arm work yet? No. Okay. Well, what am I going to do? Like, that is that is the urgency. That is the attitude that we could be feeling. No one faults me for their disability. No one says, you know, this is this is all your fault that I'm still disabled. But, you know, but in in the same breath, um, they see me trying, and I don't see a lot of other people trying this hard to solve it tomorrow and i think that if you had a person with the condition in the room saying hey <laughs> remember me i'm still here yeah what's next david you know, I think, I, that's the yeah key. 
I think, David, you just answered the magic wand question right there as part of it. I, honestly, like you're bringing it full circle. You're bringing it to respond to the patient. And I, I, I've seen this so many times where we where we invest and we ask so much of them early on in the process and that early discovery. And then, you know, you, you mentioned too, on the clinician side, we don't, we don't see if it's going to fit into the workflow so that it can get to the patient, but we don't follow up and give the patient the final word. I don't know if that's the right way to say, but is this going to work for you and your lifestyle? And so we always, we always wrap up with that magic wand. So I guess, under the rehab lens, there's so much that we talked about today. You know, we always ask if, if we, if you, you know, if we handed you a magic wand, how would you redesign or change the stroke care pathway? And that can be on the reimbursement side, that can be the outcome side. What, you know, I know it's a sort of a loaded question, but how, what do you, what do you think that um, it would take? Well, no, I mean, if it's it's a real magic wand, it's really magic. If it's a well, real magic wand, we don't have a sponsor I, I, yet, so our magic <laughs> wand is uh, is really in its infancy. But it's a real magic well, wand. Pretend. I, 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 you know, I think one of the wisest things that I ever heard was um, uh, someone I worked with who, uh, you know, grew up, uh, grew up, you know, had a tough upbringing and and. Uh, grew up in a tough spot and they they said you know what you know one thing i wish was that every person who was a candidate to become president of the united states i wish that they could just live for a year mi living minimum wage and that you had to get through that gauntlet to be able to become president of the united states and i you know if i had a magic wand like i would want every person every so-called stroke researcher or clinician you you got to live a year either caring for a person with a stroke or understanding you know living the symptoms of a stroke understanding what it is to live inside the body of a stroke like that's what we need that level of empathy and that level of lived experience in all of our researchers and clinicians because we, we're not there and, and we're not even close we're, we're teaching the opposite we're teaching don't have empathy don't have an understanding uh just follow the science keep emotion out of it and um, if I could instill that in every person, watch how, how much more quickly the research would go if you could just make that small shift in perspective. I'll say it. That was the best magic wand answer yet. Honestly, honestly, like you couldn't speak truer words. And I think every every listener can't can't argue what you just said. You're not moving a mountain. You're not you know, trying to say everyone could get a mind maze in the home that costs, you know, however much money you're saying, you know, but, but it's, yeah. and hopefully everyone will get a mind maze in their home budget, but it's that passion, that, that spark with that David and I, you know, and you yourself from, you know, a young age, like it, it takes that motivation to move mountains. Like, and, and I think, you know, you carry that with you, even though, you know, we're, we're speaking to stroke here, but, I know deep down, like you have that intrinsic motivation, you know how to speak to a patient and have the empathy. Um, so yeah, well, yeah. well said, well said. Keep, keep going after that 1%, David. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. We'll do. 
All right. Well, we'll wrap it up here. Um, you know, we'd love to have you back on. It's been an excellent conversation. Um, we still need to talk about Kevin Durant's uh, brain simulation. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, well, David. Thank you, guys. Thanks. I loved it. Thank, thank you. Me. Good night. <laughs>